The acceleration slammed the racers back in their seats. The bull shot forward and bore down on the little knot of petrified people with appalling speed. This time there was no mistaking the hits. A quick succession of jars had Willie calling upon all his driving skill to keep from losing control. Hank pressed a clean spray button to wash the blood off the front of the dome. He sat with eyes glued to the rear view screen. Man, old man, he murmured. What a record, what a score. He turned to Willie. Please, he said. Please stop. Let's get out. I know it's against regulations, but I've just got to see how we did. It won't take long. We can afford a couple minutes of time now. Suddenly, Willie felt he had to get out too. This was the biggest tragedy act he had ever had. He had a vague feeling there was something he wanted to do. He brought the car to a stop. They stepped out. Within seconds, the deserted street was swarming with people. Now the races were out of their car, they felt safe and curious. A few of them pressed forward to take a look at Willie. Naturally, he was recognized. His photo had been seen in one way or another by everyone. Willie was gratified by the obvious adulation. He looked about him. There were many people in the street now, but they were not all fawning and beaming upon him. Willie frowned. What was wrong? Wasn't he one of their greatest racers? And hadn't he just made a record score, giving them a tragedy act they wouldn't soon forget? What was the matter with those hicks? Suddenly, the crowd parted. Slowly, a young girl walked up to Willie. She was beautiful, even with the terrible anger that burned on her face. In her arms, she held the still body of a child. She looked straight at Willie with loathing in her eyes. Her voice was low, but steady, when she said, Butcher. Hollywood, the dream, and the nightmare. No, I mean it. I'd love to have someone to love or someone to love me. It ain't easy being a freak. And we're supposed to do this by treating ourselves to a fancy woman hunt, by turning them loose, hunting them down, and murdering them in cold blood. What you are about to see now is the second degree of torture. We should just bear our breasts to the wind and let nature take its course, right? Hey, cops! We don't have a permit. Run! Sure it's violent, but that's the way we love it! Violent, violent, violent! Will you listen to me, you free preacher son of a bitch? The Lord of Flies. A bit strong for your taste, perhaps? A bit crude for my taste. Yeah, well, one day you'll find out that crudity is in the eye of the beholder.
Well, hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Project Exploitation. If you're listening, the voice you hear right now is Nick Cheney, and with me is a great friend, Dan Jeremy Brooks. Dan, how are you? Hey there, ho there, everyone. Hello there. Very excited. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Well, as am I. Good. Oh, boy. So, this is a new podcast, in case anyone uh, couldn't tell. Um, it's weird to say it's a new podcast, because I've been doing a podcast for, like, the better part of mm. the last five years now, and I would call this an unofficial spin-off of that podcast. <laughs> I agree. It's like, um, uh, it's it's Grady to Sanford and Son, you know, or... Um, oh, yes. You know, or uh, the, the Tortellis to Cheers, or something like that, you know, something like... Oh, boy. I know. But, I salute you, Dan Hedaya. <laughs> oh, I love Dan Hedaya. So good. But you're right, you are a grizzled veteran at this, in a sense. I mean, you, you've... Well, I mean, you've, in a sense. You've, you've logged the hours, though. I mean, truly, you know, so... Yeah, anyway. true. And uh, my friend Dan here has also joined us on that other podcast, that podcast being Film Tank. So if you're listening to this, you probably have heard of Film Tank, because it would be weird that you'd be listening to my even more niche uh, film <laughs> podcast if you weren't already at least listened to an episode or two of the more general one. But of course, just wanted to plug uh, shamelessly that uh, you can also listen to Film Tank. Mm-hmm. But... Project exploitation is going to be a completely different beast, I think. Uh, there is going to be uh, a much more focused scope of the podcast, and we're going to talk exclusively about exploitation pictures. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, uh, essentially, it's so weird because I think exploitation uh, is a word that's interchangeably used. You know, mm-hmm. there are some people that use it as a genre in and of itself, which it kind of is. True. <laughs> there are other people who use it as, like, a catch-all, you know? Like, if it's not a uh, a straight-up drama, comedy, you know, all the mainstays or whatever, and it has some extreme violence or some extreme sex, then it must be exploitation. Right. Which is not true. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, at least yeah. not, all, not always. Um... But exploitation, in the general sense, not genre speaking, but just definition speaking, is when a film literally attempts to exploit something for sheer provocation or, uh, shall we say, like a cheap uh, shock in the attempt to make money based on that promise. You know, it is upfront about saying you're not coming to watch this because the drama is so riveting. (laughs) You're coming to watch this because this movie is essentially going to show you what other movies won't. Uh, whether it's graphic violence, uh, whether it's uh, titillating sex, or uh, in even some ways, whether it's the black community or, you know, and uh, other random subgenres in which we're just not allowed in uh, Hollywood for the longest time. So uh, I think that's the overall definition, so to speak. Um, But specifically Project Exploitation, this podcast that you're listening to, is going to cover the scope of what I would consider to be the true exploitation boon. Um, exploitation movies have been around since uh, a camera was 
you know, invented. Uh, we had nudist colony movies back in the 30s before the Hayes Code, and we had things like uh, Reefer Madness and uh, other things that, you know, scare films and whatnot. And we may even talk about uh, some of those here when we get bored or whatever. Sure. But in general, the movement into the grindhouse theaters and the prolific nature that they took uh, once they really gained a rabid fan base really happened uh, in the late 60s, uh, right after the new American kind of cinema took over and independent cinema became a real lucrative business because no longer did you have to get your financing from one of the four or five major studios you could... Go to your uncle and uh, swindle him to give you $10,000 to make a movie that you would not want to actually talk about at Thanksgiving dinner. So um, That's a perfect description uh, right there. That's, that's such a great well, encapsulation of, of, of what so much exploitation is. And I mean that as a compliment. But anyway, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah. No, and unless you're, uh, unless you're a pornographer in which you get your money from the mob, uh, which... Ah. Uh, yeah, well, we'll probably talk about that. I would love to hear more point. about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually a subject I I know very little about, but I would love to learn more. So, yeah. Oh yeah, no, pretty much in the seventies, uh, the mob was financing uh, pornography. Uh, not so much financing all of it, but certainly the ones that made it to theater. Uh, it almost always had ties, and it wasn't until porn moved from the New York City to California that it became at least reputable enough that uh, non-mob <laughs> money would touch it, basically. So, nice. But that's a story for another day. Sure. Um, <laughs> but Project Exploitation is going to cover, and I kind of, I'll set this out and say we can break this rule at any time, <laughs> but to give you a general idea of where we're going to land with most of these, uh, we're going to probably stick from the 60s to the 90s um, with a particular focus on movies from the 70s and 80s, which is when exploitation movies were really uh, financially uh, doable and making money uh, hand over fist, and was at that time in which, you know, because there was... Uh, you know, you couldn't put these movies on TV yet. Um, there was the allure to, like, go to the theater uh, and catch them because you may never see them again and whatnot. And True. you didn't want to miss out on that kind of weird uh, communal experience of uh, being in the room where everyone got to see that crazy uh, weather face or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so, yeah. So, I, before we even talk about the movie for today, uh, Dan... Uh, Got a couple questions for you, and uh, these are not okay. hard questions. <laughs> I will be a, the judge of that. Quiz. No. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me know if they are. All right. Um, but first of all, if you're... Uh, the most important question I got to put out is, if you are listening to this, it means you have seen, at this point, our podcast logo. And mm. Dan Jeremy Brooks, uh, <laughs> there are two groundhogs mm -hmm. on, uh, on yes. our logo. I, I haven't... I don't know because I can't see into the future yet which logo we went with because we have two versions. True. But both versions uh, contain two furry friends. Uh, <laughs> why don't you enlighten our listeners as to why? Just why? Sure. Uh, okay. So it's it's kind of um, I'll, it's a, it's a long story. So I'm going to make it very short. Uh, but basically, um, 
uh, back in uh, the uh, late 90s and the aughts, um, my brother and his wife and I used to run a recording studio. And very early on, we realized that uh, if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to be successful, you have to sort of do something that's sometimes called define difference, where you basically find what is it that's unique about you guys, like about us, and really lean into it. Like, okay. And for us, it was that we were kind of goofy and weird, and we had an odd sense of humor that was um, a little bit on the, I don't want to say absurdist, but there was a lot of absurd in it. And so we wanted to find a way to basically keep our clients, uh, keep us in our client's head. So we decided we were going to start sending out these Groundhog Day cards. So every year we would design a new Groundhog Day card. And usually the Groundhog Day card would have, uh, you know, like um, some pictures of groundhogs, of course, and then it would have some various facts about groundhogs. But the thing uh, that was odd about it was we tried to use some facts that were true and some that were totally made up by us. So we would have stuff like, well, groundhogs have been traditionally associated with resurrection and spiritualism, especially in, you know, uh, Thailand or whatever, you know, something like that. And basically, we tried to do it in such a way that it would seem like uh we could you know pass pull one over and, and somebody might find it funny so and the idea was that they would go oh groundhog day card that's so crazy and they would put it on their fridge and then a few months later they would think to call us and book some studio time again with us which was the which was the point so we started doing it every year and um eventually the the studio we ended up closing shop um, but we kept doing the Groundhog Day cards, so now we just send them to people that we dig, who we think will it's find true. them amusing. I, yeah, I I received them now as of a few years ago. Yes, uh, upon our meeting. Right, exactly. I mean, I, I could kind of tell pretty usually pretty quickly after meeting somebody. I'm like, I should ask them. I, I know I know whether I should ask them or not. <laughs> you know, the greatest thing is when you first asked me. I think. I wouldn't say we barely knew each other, but obviously we were not at the stage where we are now, where we're uh, sure. wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. colleagues. Not friends, just colleagues. Uh, right, right. There's a, yeah, co- co- collegiate, a collegiate atmosphere of, of, yes, yes, go on, sorry. <laughs> That's right. Um, but I remember when you first you asked me, and I've seen you now ask other people in my presence when you've reached that point of like, oh, I should ask them if they want the groundhog. So it's like I see and it's like, OK, I know where I was when I was asked <laughs> because I got to admit when you asked me that, even though you explained it. Right. That doesn't actually explain anything. It does until I'm holding it in my hands and I'm like, "Oh, everything he said was extremely literal." <laughs> Sent me a postcard with the groundhog on it right. on Groundhog's Day, and I cherish it now every year. Oh, but wonderful. Uh, getting over that hump of like, "What the hell is this?" Uh, before right. I actually got it, uh, it, it was a delightful. Well, wonder I, I I love doing them, and they've gotten more and more uh, ridiculous and um, uh, uh, baroque as the years go by, you know. Um, and uh, but the other thing is, there's sort of this weird, the whole idea of using fake facts and real facts and blending them was this sort of like um, almost like Abbas Kiarostami esque thing where where oh, they're like oh boy. I'm not to type it but it's like oh okay it's real or it's not we're not sure which part is real <laughs> and it it ended up kind of becoming this weird thing where at the beginning we were just finding images of groundhogs on the internet and a lot of people who take photographs God bless them they're not necessarily zoologists and they don't necessarily know what 
every single woodland creature is mm. exactly. As do I do right. not know. Right. I mean, you know, like... I didn't even learn the word ermine until, like, last year. That's... Wow. Yeah, that is a good word, yeah. though. That's... Again, but that's or a... Mus- or musculate. I have a friend who's super into... Musculate. That's uh, the entire, like, weasel, ferret, right. woodland type, whatever. Anyway, oh, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm learning a lot. Well, that's actually kind of cool, because I, I only learned about this stuff because I was researching it, and because I was trying to figure out, okay, which one of these... Okay, the guy labeled a groundhog, but is this actually a marmot, you know? And, and, <laughs> yeah. and so, as the years have gone by, I've learned... Um, you know, uh, retroactively, that a lot of our groundhogs are not groundhogs on there. Um, in fact, a lot of times, uh, young groundhogs or, or baby groundhogs look a lot like adolescent or fully grown prairie dogs. So Aww. at this point, I know, and they're, they're, they're all just so damn adorable, to be honest. Marmots, uh, they're all just, you know... All all the members of the the Rodentia genus, if you will, and um, I honestly, so at this point, it's it's kind of it's like a snake eating its own tail. It's like the Ouroboros, where it's like, ah, you know, it's like I said about Kiristami, where it's like, well, what? How much is it is real? How much of it isn't? We started out trying to be funny and clever, and now it came back, and now we don't even know anymore. And I've basically just decided to embrace the madness. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to yeah. use photos I like and. I think they're groundhogs, but I'm sure somebody who actually knows would probably go, you know, my friend, this is actually a, you know, a black-tailed marmot from the Southwest, you know, whatever. And they would, I'm sure, be totally right. So anyway, that's just the part I find is funny, is that it's it's become, as the drawings and the illustrations have become goofier and more outlandish and weirdly satirical in a really in-jokey way sometimes... At the same time, we also had a joke sort of played on us by this whole thing about not knowing what which animals were which. <laughs> so, anyway, so that's that's the that's the story. Well, and you know, it's funny because it's really starting to consume your life, Dan. Because yes. when I when we had talked about this podcast, uh, one of the things obviously that first came to mind was creating a logo. And there are a million things that I might be able to bring to this podcast, <laughs> and. Any sort of graphic design skill is not one of them or among them. Oh, uh, I, I, I've, I've seen some of your mock-ups. They're not bad, actually. I thought so. Oh, why, thank you. But mm-hmm. uh, I vehemently disagree. And so what I didn't <laughs> realize was that because I was inspired by your annual Groundhog Day postcard, because I'm like, well, Dan knows how to do this shit. I, I, you know, I guess I should have clarified and said when I wanted Groundhog Day... <laughs> I didn't mean Groundhog, but I love it, and I'm very excited. Uh, I, I think it's going to be great. Well, thank you. I, I I definitely had a lot of fun making it, and it was one of those things where I, I literally did not intend to do it. But I was actually trying to find <laughs> like like those um, prototypical '60s shots of like uh, women and posters like shrieking in horror, like you yeah. know, sh- shrinking from you know, and I couldn't yep. find shots that I liked that were of good enough quality and finally I'm like well you know I've got some groundhogs doing some pretty goofy expressions like they're looking like they're re- recoiling in horror and I was like why uh, Why am I over I'm overthinking it why am I not playing into my wheelhouse here I mean the groundhog thing so and it kind of became a joke and then it kind of I kept going and I started to enjoy it and I was like oh my god yeah. I've got fucking groundhogs in this now so it's well it's, it's just, a great logo Dan thank so you. thank you very much thank you yes um and Speaking on that, too, you also mentioned that you used to work in uh, that uh, studio yes. uh, with your brother and sister-in-law, right? Mm-hmm. And we sh- I, at least I want to mention that 
the song you hear during the theme song is courtesy from one of your productions. So yes, thank you very much for letting us use that beautiful piece of music. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, it's it's um it's been kind of fun um having you listen to them after you know even years later and kind of having you go oh this is cool we should use this and I'm like oh great man I had almost completely forgotten because we were writing so many songs so fast that after a while like sometimes I recognize them but I'm like man I don't even remember what we titled this and I don't even remember who wrote which part and you know because often the three of us would write together pretty rapidly so I'm, I'm glad yeah oh, yeah mm-hmm. um and one other thing I guess it's not it's less of a question but more of just uh just for the listeners at home uh and you can slap me if I'm wrong uh is it fair to say just so that someone can maybe get a very shorthand for the dynamic here is it fair to say that this uh, podcast, uh, shall we say, Project Exploitation, going forward is going to be kind of a new veteran and a kind of, not necessarily newbie, but just someone who's uh, just starting, so to speak. They're, mm-hmm. I would say deep dive. I mean, you've seen a million movies, so it's not sure. so much that you're sitting there going, what's a blockbuster? But uh, specifically into the this world of uh, exploitation movies, watching the deep cuts and that kind of thing, um, is something I've been doing regularly for the last five years. So it's kind of become a pet project of mine, and I've even shown a couple to you that I don't think you had heard of at that point mm-hmm. um, when, I, when I had shown them. But is it that fair to say that there's going to be kind of like um, that kind of a dynamic, just so that way people kind of understand where our heads are at as to uh, what our experience is going into this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in a sense, I am the Padawan learner, if you will. I mean, so to speak. I mean, but it, it's true. I mean, I have seen a lot of movies, as you know, but I, I didn't. I've, oh, yeah. I've never You've seen really more movies done... than I have. That much is for sure. Well, I you know, anyway. Well, I was going to say, technically speaking. Oh, well, yeah. That, that's a good thing. Oh, age-wise. sure. Well, that, yeah, that's true. Because, I mean, what the hell have I been doing this whole time? No, uh, but I think, uh, yeah, for me, I, I've definitely seen a lot of films um that are that would fall under this but i never really you've approached it with a certain um precision in the last couple of years annoyance it's, well but it's been like it's very much been a project in a sense or or a a um you know what i mean it's it's been something you've really uh been focused on and i think in that sense and and, and also because you've just read a lot more about the the circumstances of the making the movies and the major players and everything that I think you probably know way more. So yeah. So when I'm asking like, Oh, is that true? I'm not actually like doing that in a scripted way. Like, (laughs) all right. And now I go, really tell me more like in a Ron Papel, you know, infomercial. I'm actually asking, Oh, I didn't know that, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Well, great. And I will say uh, probably 50% of any question you ask me, I will still not know the answer to because I still have barely scratched the surface in this little uh, murky, sleazy well. But uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be a good time. So I think so, too. I mean, it's it's just it's such a rich amount of films that I, I feel like it's there's just so much to, to, to dive into, if you will. The you know, sleaze, if you our will. mutual friend, Alex... Uh, asked me when I told him about this and he was all for it uh, mm-hmm. but he was he had one question and it's kind of funny because I do think that that's a valid question from the outside looking in but he was like is there like enough movies to like cover and it's like are you kidding me like <laughs> like just in, like I, I I totally see what he means in the sense that like you know is there really like whatever but 
uh, on the one hand, it that's actually one of the fun parts of it is just that there's just endless, endless trash. And yes, totally. there's definitely a whole heap that's not very good. But you'd be surprised because of how cheap they were to make, uh, how many they were able to get uh, under their belt yeah. within a fiscal year. So uh, there is more than enough to go around for sure. Mm, indeed. All right. So today we are going to be talking about the movie Death Race 2000. Uh, if you couldn't already tell from the opening passage, you may have heard at the beginning of this podcast, uh, which was an actual reading from the uh, the short story written by, uh, I believe, maybe it's pronounced Yves Melchior? I, that was my um, guess, too. Yeah. Yeah, because I think he's French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you'd have to ask him. Uh-huh. Uh but, uh, yeah, so that was a reading from the short story that this is based off of, and his short story is called The Racer. So you kind of understand if you've seen the movie, and then if you heard that passage where uh, the similarities come from as far as building that world in which uh, human beings, or I should say citizens, are essentially sacrificial lambs for this kind of spectator sport in right. this dystopian uh, government. But uh, we're going to talk about the movie, Death Race 2000. Uh just a few, uh, just a few little facts and figures and uh, cast of characters here before we really open this up. But uh, this was directed by Paul Bartel, uh, who is, of course, the director of Eating Raoul, which I have actually never seen. Dan, have you seen that? I believe it or not, have not. It was one of those I used to see at the video store all the time, and I'm like, one of these days, but I never got yeah. around to it. No, well, Sadly. neither have I, uh, but it's on the Criterion Collection, uh, so maybe oh, one of these days I will. Sorry about that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's probably his most famous film, I think, uh, mm-hmm. outside of this. So, yeah, Paul Bartel directs. Uh, this was, as I said, produced by Roger Corman because it was a uh, New American Picture movie, which was Roger Corman's uh, very esteemed exploitation company that was pretty much prominent from the 70s, like, like 1970, I think, was Inception, uh, all the way through the late 80s. So for a mm-hmm. while there, uh, Roger Corman was the man, um, and he had an eye for talent uh, as far as directors for hire and whatnot. And throughout his entire over uh, at, at New American Pictures, they started a lot of crazes, whether it was, you know, the releasing the student nurses, which kicked off the uh, nurses' pictures, oh, yeah. or the big dollhouse, which, of course, is the American uh, craze of the women in prison movies, although Jess Franco technically made one before that, but whatever. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, well, mm-hmm. I think so. I may be wrong, and you know what? I'm not going to correct myself after this episode, so I'm going to really quickly That's, do a good well, old Google search here and see when did 99 women come out, because that's the movie I'm thinking of here. Yeah, because... And we're going oh, to see. No, no, I'm... Uh, well, re- Here we go. Oh, 99 okay. Women was released 1969, so I was right. Yeah, yeah, because um, uh, Dollhouse was what, 70? 71? 71, I 71. think, yeah. So that's the real progenitor uh, for sure. that. Sure. But obviously, American-wise, uh, you know, you can't beat the big Dollhouse. Yes. Um, and so many other movies obviously came from New American Pictures. Movies we're probably going to talk about on this very podcast at 
some point. Yeah, it's I was gonna be hard to avoid it. Oh yeah, I was going to say I'm really look, actually looking forward to talking about either Dallas or you know Caged Heat or, or one of those you know uh, women in prison yeah. movies, uh, and they both have Roberta Collins in them, uh, and she's in uh, Death uh, Death Race 2000, which I think is I think this is one of she's one of the standout uh, characters, and there's just, there's a lot of confidence in her performance I really like. Anyway, so yes, no, I completely agree. Uh, if you were to go see this movie uh, in the theaters when it came out, uh, that would have been April 27th, 1975, which means if you went that weekend, you could have had your choice between seeing this or Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Wow. Uh, so that would have been, yeah, a pretty interesting double feature. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, if you were in the right market uh region wise you could have also uh watched dolomite as well so oh nice uh, yeah that's that's a pretty great weekend honestly if you were in the right uh metropolitan area <laughs> yeah i mean that's pretty i mean 75 was a pretty decent year uh for films i mean you had like a one flew over you had a dog day afternoon uh a lot of other stuff i'm forgetting but i mean yeah that's a pretty that's pretty great just for one weekend shoot oh yeah Oh, so let's get on to Death Race 2000 specifically. Uh, of course, Death Race 2000 is uh, centered around a dystopian world in which a spectator's sport uh, known as the transcontinental road race has become a form of national entertainment and essentially a bunch of racers and their navigators uh, compete in this race in which two factors are the most important uh, thing, which is the time it takes you to complete the race and also the scores you make. And the scores themselves, of course, are running over innocent civilians, <laughs> all in service of a evil, uh, shall we say, fascist president mm. who mm-hmm. has given the world or uh, i guess the country this beautiful gift known as this race uh and of course maybe there's a bit of a resistance and a rebellion forming all the while uh our cast of characters here is of course uh frankenstein played by david carradine we've got annie smith as his navigator played by simone griffith uh Interestingly, no matter how many times I watch it, I will never get over the fact, but Sylvester Stallone <laughs> as Machine Gun Joe Viterbo, mm-hmm. uh, and Louisa Moritz as uh, Myra, uh, which is Machine Gun Joe's navigator. Uh, we've got Mary Waranov as Calamity Jane Kelly, Roberta Collins as Matilda the Hun, uh, Fred Grandy as Herman the German. <laughs> And uh, Martin Cove as Ray Nero the Hero. Uh, there's, of course, other people in here, but those are kind of the main people. Uh, and uh, essentially, the movie's really mostly focused, I think, on the racers and the navigators. Obviously, we, we are introduced to uh, the world at large a little bit, especially with the plotline revolving around the resistance. But um, it mostly follows the trials and tribulations uh, that these racers uh, come up against when trying to run over people <laughs> and the tragedy when that can't happen, right? So, um, <laughs> Dan, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I might. Uh, do you want to kick this off sure. and give us some thoughts on Death Wraith 2000? 
Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I, I saw this uh, quite quite a while ago, but it was great to watch it again. I think it's maybe the third time I've seen it. But, you know, honestly, watching it this time, I, I found myself really thinking about the tradition of the Most Dangerous Game short story, which is uh, from over 100 years ago. I think it's just about to it's copyrights about to expire. So expect Yay. more movies and, and, you know, stuff in yeah. that stuff. Cause it's going to be free. Uh, but I mean, I, I think there's a pretty much an almost inexhaustible interest in the concept of people like hunting each other or a predatory, uh, nature of society, particularly as a spectator sport, as a gladiatorial thing. And I just, basically, I just started thinking off the top of my head, and, and then I, I had a few others that I found, but I mean, you know, right at the top, you had like the most dangerous game with the movie, which was with Joel McRae, and that was like 1932. So, I mean, and then you've got obviously stuff like the Hunger Games, you've got uh, Gamer, which is actually quite good, uh, The Running Man, uh, Hard Target, which is a, a actually kind of a delightful little John Woo flick with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, you got uh, Death Row Game Show, which you and I saw a few months Hell ago, yeah. and which there are some parallels here, which I'll get into later. But uh, yeah. you know, the Woman Hunt, Surviving the Game, The Blood of Heroes. Those last two, by the way, both had Rutger Hauer. He was a he was a fiend for these movies, and Hell yeah, uh, you know. But then there was like Turkey Shoot, which is like an exploitation, which is very highly regarded. And you got like the Battle Royale films, uh, which uh, Kinji yeah. uh, Fukusaku. You know, and even stuff like, you know, like Two Figures in a Landscape. It was this movie from 1970. It's just these two guys being hunted. You have no idea who they are. They're totally anonymous the whole time. Uh, and uh, there's a actually pretty great film called Live from 2007 with Ava Mendez. Uh, and another really great movie called Series 7. Uh, and they're both basically about the idea of people um, killing each other as a game show, in a sense. And then, I mean, then you've got, like, just even, well, I mean, like, for instance, Death Race was partly, uh, they were trying, Corman was trying to cash in in part on Rollerball, you know, which was a, a much higher budget film, of course, on uh, with a similar idea. But, I mean, you've got, like, uh, The Osterman Weekend, which has got Rutger Hauer right there again. And then, like, even, like, you know, like, Balls of Fury, you know, like a goofy movie like that, where the guy's the ping pong, you know what I mean? But it's like, you know, Christopher Walken's like... Which part I'll take of, your word for it. <laughs> oh, it's it's actually kind of funny in spots. It's got uh, Aisha Tyler. It's, it's it's pretty. It's got you know uh, Terry Crews. It's got a few you know. But yeah, he's like, which part of sudden death didn't you understand? You know, because they like kill the guy if he loses, basically. <laughs> and yeah, yeah and, and even like this year with Craig Zobel's The Hunt, and then there's that show with uh, Christoph uh, Waltz, um, which is basically a modern remake of it, which I. I, I I haven't seen it, but I, it was well, it was pretty well received, I think. So anyway, I just think it's kind of interesting how we find ourselves uh, going back to this idea of, uh, of the predatory uh, aspect and, and especially the idea that it's entertainment, the idea that we're getting calloused enough that we're like, Oh, we could just watch this. Cause I mean, that's one of the running jokes in death race is that the people are just so totally inured to it. It's just, it's just, you know, it's television and they're just totally, you know, but I mean, it's like, um, like I was telling you, like I said about the death row game show where it's from 1987, it's basically this guy, uh, the idea is that, um, essentially, uh, death row convicts have to perform some sort of task. It's different every time. And if they win, they're freed, but if not, they're just executed right on the spot. And it was funny because there's a part in death race where, uh, Mrs. Pander, which is such a great name 
is interviewing the widow of like one of the victims, you know, and it reminded me so much of a scene like that in Death Row Game Show, where the uh, they're interviewing or, or they're showing the family of the guy on Death Row, and they're like they seem like way more psyched about the fame and the prizes than they are about the fact that their father or husband has just been executed. Yeah. You know, and and the other thing I want to say is it's kind of amazing. This is 1975. This came out a full year before Patty Shavsky's Network, mm. and Network is to me that kind of that one that really opened the floodgate for like enter- sick uh, uh, vicarious uh, entertainment, uh, you know, mixed with news, mixed with uh, cruelty and, and blood sport and that sort of thing. I mean, it's not as extreme in network, but you know, that's kind of where I'm seeing it. So anyway, I just, I, I well, think it's intriguing how it, this, we kind of keep bouncing back to it. It's this perennial theme. Well, one thing I will say that I think you're touching on is that it is interesting rewatching it uh, in this year because mm-hmm. so many of its predecessors, I do think, uh, ex- especially the more modern ones, uh, have an almost like uh, compulsion to make sure that the people competing are prisoners. Mm-hmm. And in Death Race 2000, is that ever explicitly made? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think yeah, um, I don't think so. They are. I mean, maybe it's implied, but that's a stretch. And I found it very interesting because I actually watched uh, randomly. I didn't think I was going to, but I did watch the the remake by Paul W S Anderson like last night on a whim. Sure. And and of course that was the premise. You know, they reused names and whatnot, but the idea was that they weren't on death row, but they were in a you know huge prison uh, locked up on an island basically and if they don't do this they're in trouble type thing and it's almost right. like the morality there is a little slanted because like nowadays we and and that's what makes i think death race 2000 great but nowadays we wouldn't accept a movie in which we're just told yeah you know what these people <laughs> went along with this you know and and it's funny because we're seeing i think uh in today's world how easy it is for a lot of people to go along with a lot of shitty ideas mm-hmm. from the top down <laughs> indeed uh well but you're right i mean gamer the running man uh no escape from 1994 where it's like a prison island where gladiatorial combat it's very much it's yeah it's it's very much like you know i don't know there's that quote about you know you can tell a society by how they treat their uh their prisoners or their least among them you know and yeah i mean it's unfortunately kind of plausible some of this stuff you know uh oh yeah yeah it's the well it, it's funny uh watching this movie and you know the unexpected events this year um you know the whole covid19 thing and the idea of, uh, I guess, you know, sacrificing our citizenry at the altar of convenience or oh, the yeah. idea of capitalism as a national cult. I mean, that's something you see all over the place in Death Race. I mean, and, and the other thing I always think of is um, I, I was thinking a lot of Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's I mean, it's I think most most folks have heard of it, if not read it. I mean, it's but it's like it seemed like one of those major touchstones, you know, the idea of sacrificing the citizens like Frankenstein, you know, he meets that gal from the fan club where she she's like oh i'm going to be i've i've been given the honor of being sacrificed you know it's very much a religious uh, proposition you know and the idea of sacrificing the citizens for the greater good of course although in this case i mean in the case of death race and and with covid too unfortunately is that the greater good is never the people at the top the people at the very top are, are pretty safe they're pretty insulated 
but it's like yeah. you know in a way it's like you know for death race uh it's it's not sacrificing for the years coming we crop like in the lottery but it's you know the greater good is continuing a successful economy like we have here and you know it's pretty obvious i think from watching death race that like the economy has probably not been working too well for most of the people for a while and that the race has become this total bread and circuses they, they distraction they say something a yeah, they say something along the lines of, like, the failure, there's something of 79 yes. at some point, which essentially, or the recession or something. So it's like, ever since uh, 1979, in this film's universe, uh, the world's been on the brink, so to speak. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, no, that's right. I, yes, you're absolutely right. But it's it's definitely, there's definitely this idea of sacrificing the working class to the almighty dollar that I think we have, we see today, especially with, like, Trumpy and some of the governors who are like really cavalier about wanting to reopen, you know, and now unfortunately they're really, in my opinion, reaping the whirlwind or rather their, their citizens are the, the, the people at the top aren't, but it's like, in a way it's like, I mean, you look at like, you know, the comments of, um, uh, Lieutenant governor in Texas, uh, I've got his name here, Dan Patrick. He said basically, well, you know, we, the octogenarians may just have to be sacrificed for the economy. And it's, you know, it's like <laughs> the economy has become more important than human life, you know, and yeah. it, much like in the lottery, you know, or, or, uh, or I, I, in this movie, the euthanasia day. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. They literally wheel them out, yes. um, and leave them there. Cause they're like, you know what, uh, overcrowding or whatever reason <laughs> that they have or whatever. Right. And uh, I, I absolutely love that scene because I think that's exploitation at its best where, your kind of promised bloodshed and you know you 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 want your bloodthirst quenched but you know there's still a beating heart and, and of course i'm all for technically a movie that <laughs> went through with that as well because why else am i watching this well sure but yeah. for it to subvert it uh, in that way where frankenstein decides to go after the hospital administration <laughs> and and the nurses and the doctors uh for doing that, uh, I, I absolutely loved that that whole scene. That's definitely probably a standout for me in the whole movie. Oh yeah, me too. I always I always chuckle at that part, and I love I love how the one the uh, Howard Cosell type announcer is even like uh, it shows he's got a red blooded sense of humor, and he's kind of chuckling. <laughs> you know, I just I love that. You know, but it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think like in a way, um, being mowed down on Euthanasia Day was is probably less cruel than maybe COVID, uh, you know, or, I mean, like, I, I know it sounds terrible, but it's like, I'd rather get it all done at once than, you know, like... At least they're upfront about it. Well, exactly, and slowly choke to death or massive organ failure. I'm not really... That doesn't sound... I'd rather get, like, smashed <laughs> into the pavement by Machine Gun Joe Viterbo instead, you know? Yeah. And, and, oh, and the other thing is, in, like, the lottery and, and death race, it's like, the, the people die, you see them, they're right there, they're on television, or they're right in there in the town square. I mean, here it's like we've kind of got the death sort of off to the side, you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, we don't know what the numbers are in some of the states, uh... So it's like, you know, I mean, to the point where the people who die, I mean, we know, unfortunately, that many, most of the people who die of, of COVID don't, can't be around their loved ones or anything. So it's it's like, they're kind of whisked off to the side. And I feel like with Death Race, it's almost more honest. <laughs> it's like, you know what, yeah. we're gonna just straight up slaughter people, you know, and, you know, so and I couldn't help but keep thinking about that empathy failure in our country right now and that collective lack of imagination 
uh, that we're experiencing when I was watching Death Race. You know, like at the beginning, you got citizens that are cheering for racers. Like, they're like, you know, they're like holding up Nazi flags, you know, because of Matilda the Hun. And without any any sense of, I don't know, there's something really still pretty transgressive and really funny about that, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, It's an incredibly... Uh, prescient film i would say mm-hmm. uh, it's like you know there may not be a race on but technically speaking uh this game is being played in in one way or another mm-hmm. uh in today's america and i think it was being played obviously back then as well it's not like sure. fascism just uh, uh was born <laughs> mm-hmm. uh recently or anything right. like that but it's weird how prevalent some of these things have become when we thought that they would die down uh after this era right um one thing i i absolutely love about this movie and you've touched on it a little bit is the the depiction of the media um yes the weird cheerful demeanor and disposition of almost every single personality and pundit (laughs) on this uh, in this movie actually reminds me a little bit of the way the Norman Lear show, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, ah. uh, satirizes the media, which is like, if you say anything with a smile, it it is worth delivering, so to speak, <laughs> you know? Sure. And that's kind of what we have going on here. And that's kind of how we can see how the media in Death Race 2000 is what is very much an instrumental tool in perpetuating this current government's regime. And what I love is uh, the various ways we see it, whether it's in the reporter, uh, you know, with the junior, whatever, um, and uh, the way he covers it. And like, it's, it's like, he's like talking to children, the way he is so overexcited because it, uh, whatever it's just it's great. Well, and, you know, you don't forget the the yeah. one gal's name Pander. So I mean, you know, talking. Yeah, to I was gonna know. say Grace oh, Pander. Yeah. No, and 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 her uh, whatever, and that kind of strikes me as a almost commentary on morning shows, you know, where you're everybody's friend and this isn't the news. This is a, you know, a community and we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and she obviously embodies that so well. Um, but yeah, I just absolutely love every time we cut to, uh, that. And I almost get the feeling that like, obviously there are scenes in which like a camera in that universe would not reach. Like when we're, when they're doing their in-between stages, you know, rest and relaxation or whatever. Right. But I feel like almost everything we see during the actual races is like how the media is actually covering it, uh, which is like this weird, uh, tepid line between exploitative in the sense that it's like we're going to see this uh, extremely graphic, violent thing, but then we cut away at a moment in which uh, like all like... Um, the semblance of loss would actually take effect because now we're just going to cut to, you know, these reporters. And I feel like the editing in this movie is jarring in a good way because I think it continually does that trick where it, it shows you this, what we want, you know, this violent, natural, you know, animalistic uh, battle royale. Mm-hmm. But then when the actual consequences of that would come, uh, we'll cut to a reporter smiling at us and saying, oh, 
gee golly. And, <laughs> and, it, and it works on two levels because on the one hand, it does actually make a more palatable film when you're watching it at home. Uh, on the other hand, it really does mirror what I would assume that the viewers uh, in the universe of Death Race 2000 and how they have been conditioned to just accept this, which is that, you know, they're shown it, but they're not actually forced to deal with it, uh, which is why it's so easy for them to give into it. Oh, that's that's so true. Um, and I, I think, like, in a way, it's like the... Like you said, it's almost like we've been... I mean, obviously not the interstitial scenes where they're resting up, but it is almost like we're plugged in directly to the TV feed as it's being edited and sent out. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it's it's like you can see that they're see- they're getting their fix. You know, they're getting the violent fix that, again, like as an exploitation viewer, we do expect some of that too. But then they're cutting away, and it's it's like if if it's been the death has been tarted up enough that we don't see the the um the aftermath, which is actually interesting because of that passage you read, you read at the beginning, uh, which talks about these, you know, suddenly the guy, the one of the uh, racers is like, Oh, why are they so unhappy with me? And it's like, well, because you've never actually stuck around to see what happens after you've murdered somebody, you know, because they, you, you drive on and they cut and the audience gets to have their fix, you know, and have it all softened up and tarted up as entertainment without actually seeing the the horrible aftermath, you know, emotionally and and, and physically, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's it is interesting too. I mean, there is a line where he's like, "Never before have the masses foregone all comfort," you know. And it's like I said, the economy seems to be in in not doing well, but it it makes it sound like like. I, the way it's filmed and and the way they commentate on it, it does sound like it's this blood sport that's an inevitable fact. It's like there's not even a thought at this point where the people, well, most people, other than maybe outside the resistance, are like, well, maybe they're, we don't really want to do this and they only can do it if we consent to it because they need the consent of us if they're the governed, you know, as the governed. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, it, it, again, I, I enjoy the religious aspects of the economy, this holy entity or this holy construct and, uh, you know, how it's, it becomes bigger than any one person in a sense. And it becomes more important than life, you know, which again yeah. is, I think, sort of what we're seeing around here. Uh, I mean, that's actually one of my favorite parts is um, where he, uh, <laughs> oh, you know what? I, 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 was, I was incorrect before. I was saying about the Howard Cosell guy was talking about how he's got a red-blooded sense of humor, but he, he was saying that after Frankenstein mowed down the high priest deacon guy. Because he oh, had to, yeah, he had yeah. to circle back around, and you know, I mean, it's such a perfect thing because, like, you know, you're watching this movie, and you've got these elites, and they're very much uh, they're not going to get hurt. They're they 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 have the bravery of being out of range, if you will, and to see them all of a sudden, especially one who's like talking, going on, waxing ecstatic about the religious, uh, patriotic aspects, and then bam, you know, he gets killed. <laughs> And they're like, yeah. well, I don't know what to think of this, you know, but, oh, it does yeah. count. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I love how they have to basically, like, make up the rules as they go, which I actually think was a telling detail that we get to see live on air that, 
you know, they haven't even really thought all of this through. And not only that, but they can reach a decision within basically 30 seconds uh, after <laughs> something as extraordinary as that happens, uh, which just shows how fucking bullshit uh, this entire, you know, fabric of this government is. Uh, because in reality, it's all about saving face and depicting, mm. you know, uh, that everything is as it should be. Yes, yes. The show has to go on no matter what, you know. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, I love there's even that part where they're waiting to hear the judgment and the the one guy is like, starts talking about like the history of, I don't even violence or something. I don't even remember, but it's like, it's clear he's just vamping for time for like 15 seconds and they're like, oh, and we're back. Yes, the, 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 it does count. And then they move on. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, they're like, they're trying to keep the people entertained the whole time. You know, yeah. they, they can't, there's no time for introspection here, you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and how about the way in this movie uh, the government obviously sidesteps all domestic responsibility and their first response to a resistance and a rebellion that's uh, a coup that's been put into place is to publicly go on record and say, it's the French, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, who apparently also trashed their economy for some reason. We don't really know yes. how, but yeah, I, I yeah. love that. Yeah, it's a, yeah, the French, they're the uh they're the the devil in the woodpile every time, right? You know. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but so not only are they the enemy, but also we learn in a great detail that the uh president of this country doesn't even live in the country because why would he, you know, <laughs> right. when shit like this is happening on a daily business, he's <laughs> over in Japan because that's where the home of the president of our, you know, United States of America is. So right. it's like the anything outside of the country is both good or bad, depending on the time of the day. Right. No, no, no. It's very true. I mean, yeah, there's even a thing at the end where he's like, well, I think the president has been, you know, ruling from Moscow too long. And, you know, and even in China and Japan. And it's like, it's so, I, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but... Yeah, it, it it is really kind of amusing, uh, especially I think even like at the beginning, like even before the credits start, you have that that like that that kind of lower budget, kind of funky music with the, with the tape wobble and all that. It's like uh, it, it, it kind of reflects the wobbliness of the government. It's like they're just they're just barely holding on, you know. It, you know, or or like, uh, or right after that, you hear this the that brass band is playing the Star Spangled Banner, and it's like yeah. they're barely getting through that man, and it's it's like, whew, man, this you you get the feeling the foundation is, you know, they have a good show on television, but man, it is just you know the president doesn't even want to live in this shithole country. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, another thing that we haven't talked about a lot yet so we'll bring it up now is the uh the idea of the resistance actually yes you know i think the first time i watched this movie that was my one hesitation about it and now rewatching it as i have for this episode uh i'm completely sold on it but at first glance i thought it was underwhelming but i actually like this time around how the resistance is depicted and kind of subtly developed instead of becoming a big overarching plot line because it does inform everything that, you know, the uh, the navigator, obviously, his navigator, Frankenstein's navigator, uh, you know, does or doesn't do. And then we find out that Frankenstein's interests are actually pretty much aligned with uh, 
the resistance as well. Right. But I really like the scene where we're first introduced to it of those uh, kind of workers in that plant as they're watching TV. And it just becomes this like charade of like we're all watching, but also we're we're done watching type thing. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what about you? Do, are you a fan of the way this uh, movie kind of uh, depicts this rebellion, or do you think it's half baked? No, no. I think it's good. I mean, it's it's the the movie's very, is a very broad satire overall. But um, I I would say so. So I mean, you can't expect um a great. Uh, a great deal of nuance, but I do feel like, yeah, there is that thing. Um, well, there's even arguments within the group, which is just so typical of every like left-wing uh, guerrilla movement. It's it's always like you know everybody's always splitting off from each other, and there's like, well, we should do this. No, we should do this. So that I actually thought was pretty well done. Um, and and I I uh, I also like some of the the symbology of. Um, you know uh the uh the Annie's helmet she's got this flower logo it looks a lot like the old british labor party logo with the red emblem the red rose emblem like they still oh. use that to this day but i was like yeah. oh, i'm intrigued you know yeah I, I honestly it's it's funny because i i said you know it's a very broad film in a lot of ways which i like but it is actually pretty savvy in like its understanding of media at a time when I think we were just starting to really get a grasp on the idea that maybe uh, that when news shows you things, whether it means to or not, and whether it, atten- it whether it intends the greatest objectivity or not, they're they're making decisions in what they cut, in what they show, in what they narrate over, on who they uh, choose to show in the interview later. You know, I mean, there's. There's decisions that are made that create a fiction of sorts, no matter how good the intentions are. And I think, like somebody like Marshall McLuhan would have probably, well, hell, he was still alive. I mean, he he may have seen this movie and been like, "Yep, yep, they get it, man. They get it," you know, because it's very much about like passively watching TV and um, not because you're not. Not only are they not participating in the sport, it's totally a spectator sport, but it's they're not participating in democracy. I mean. Uh, partly it's not their fault. It sounds like they haven't really gotten the vote in a long time. <laughs> yeah. But still, but they're also very happy. They seem to be doing it, to be very, you know, pleased with themselves and pleased with everything, at least uh, on the surface, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why I think I, I love this movie and then where sometimes, and I, and I like this one that I'm about to mention, but I do think it kind of sometimes misses the mark where, uh, something like a a concept like the Hunger Games or something like that, yeah. I I do think fails in in one respect, in, in the sense that it can kind of almost suggest that the the answer to oppression is you know military esque uh, intervention or like, and I'm not saying obviously that uh, you know coups or overthrows and rebellions cannot work or anything like that. But I do think a movie like this is provocative because it does remind you that one of the most uh, uh, 
just damning tools is essentially to try to regain control of the narrative, you know, mm-hmm. and, and why the media is such an important tool in that fight. So obviously when, uh, you know, Thomasina Payne and her ragtag group of buds uh, uh, literally get um, control over the airwaves and are able to kind of interject, uh, you know, it, it it's such a stark message to what, I was, you know, the nation is watching at that time, where they're watching something that is so, it's so glib and so whatever, but, you know, all of a sudden, this uh, old, frail lady in almost uh, decolorized, you know, uh, (laughs) bargain basement uh, public access uh, feed just kind of blips in and, and reminds you that what you are watching is manufactured on some level. It's not even so much that it's fake, because obviously, technically, the, the deaths here are real or whatever, but that it is uh, shiny and distracting from what is actually happening and from the fallout and, and how it doesn't have to be this way. Because look, if if this can be interrupted, and this in and of itself is just the divis- the visual depiction of it, then so can the actual, uh, you know, government uh, regime and whatnot. So I, 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 right. I'm, I'm actually, I will say, like I said, I was slightly underwhelmed in that aspect that very first time I watched it. And I probably, because I expected something like sleazy or just more mm-hmm. uh, blunt or whatever, but I uh, definitely upon rewatch this time, I was, I was sold by it completely. And I absolutely love that aspect. It's interesting what you said, too, about the idea of interrupting the feed with this truth thing. And it, well, I mean, not only, like you said, it's like, here's this person, this Thomasina Payne, who clearly looks nothing like the people that have been on television for a long time. I mean, I'm sure they don't have older people on or people who aren't perfectly beautiful with perfect teeth and everything. You know what I mean? So that in itself is shocking. And, and you know, the other thing is there, it makes me think of some other films that are have a resistance like this too. Like in Gamer, there's a uh, attempt to um, block the signal several times in it. Um, and it's a, Michael C. Hall plays this sort of like uh, billionaire genius guy who created the game thing. And even he's kind of intrigued, like, oh, they just uh, cut our feed and now they're talking. He's like, oh, what's, how did they do that? You know, so I mean, it's it's something that's fascinating, I think, even to the antagonists uh, in Gamer. So I wonder about that here, if like the people, it must be such a shocking thing to see this person. And, and using words that they probably don't really hear in their uh, de- discourse and certainly not on TV nowadays. You know what I mean? It's interesting. Oh, absolutely. And I also think an uh, interesting thing is that the fact that it, you know, if this movie was made today, uh, the leader of the rebellion would be a young person, I think. Right now, mm-hmm. that is the kind of de facto narrative, I think, of a lot of, even in our own politics that are playing out right now, it's that young people have to be the one to, you know, step in, save the day or whatever. So it is It is such a weird throwback that at one point we were like, ah, the olds had something to teach us, you know? And, and I don't right. even mean that as a pejorative, but no, just no, no, that yeah. we, it, some things have changed, and I just don't think that that 
would happen today. And that's kind of what's somewhat, you know, refreshing about watching a movie from this era is that you can start to see weird divides. And I'm in no way trying to say Project Exploitation uh, does not believe in the value of our senior citizens. So I just want to put that onto the record. Well, I mean, uh, I, I just got done, you know, bitching about COVID-19. So I think people know I love our octogenarians. <laughs> so, all right. So go on. Sorry. That's right. No, but certainly... Uh, the national conversation about political power is shifting toward the younger generation, uh, provided that they vote. Uh, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. One other thing we definitely got to talk about, about the movie specifically is the racers and their cars. Cause I think that's one of the best aspects of this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's because I recently kind of got into this medium a little bit, but uh, since November, I have been watching a little bit of professional wrestling. And I got to admit, rewatching this movie in that light, obviously, there's a lot of parallels between the way that these uh, racers and their cars are kind of iconic and emblematic of a. Very specific, uh, good versus evil type of dichotomy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was just curious because obviously, for me at least, it reminded me of how someone like, you know, Vince McMahon runs his spectator sport. Uh, but what about you? Do you think that that it was, uh, too silly or too broad, or do you think it was just right in this universe? I felt like it was really good in this universe, um, because, uh, again, I, it, like you said, it does feel a lot like, um, uh, like Vince McMahon, where it almost feels like, you know, like when you have a film that's relatively short, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, we, we have to kind of establish the characters right away. We don't have time for backstory. So let's, let's just give them some very obvious iconography, like, you know, Calamity Jane and uh, Nero and, you know, all that. And so it's like, we immediately know, and other than Frankenstein, like you said, cause he's the one we need to get to know more later, but the others, yeah, it's like, we can kind of get an idea pretty fast what they're all about. And it does sort of feel like, like, I don't know if it's the Mr. President or who, but it feels like there is sort of a puppet master who's like, okay, you're going to be this, you're going to be this, we're going to paint your car this color, you know, and and you're going to wear these coveralls, you know, and I feel like we're going to set up this kind of rivalry between you, you know, or whatever, Um, which I think kind of, uh, I mean, to me, it feels actually perfect because this movie I was going to ask you about this it has a certain tone which I don't know I couldn't think of many movies that were like it like I I I was it's kind of like a broad satire but not like a not like an Zucker Abrams airplane thing you know yeah it was more like Dr. Strangelove or something Yeah, actually, just you saying broad satire, definitely, at least what I'm thinking of a little bit, is something akin to, like, Starship Troopers, where uh, it doesn't matter how outlandish some of the personalities are, this is technically played uh, straight and on its face at face value that this is not a winking parody, this is uh, the... (laughs) the very troubling culmination of undertones that we are already experiencing in our real world. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, Starship Troopers is one of the names I, I did finally come up with. I was like, well, it's like Dr. Strangelove or uh, Mr. Freedom, which was that it's this kind of obscure French flick, but uh, or like Sorry to Bother You has a little of it or um, yeah. 
maybe um, Michael Moore, he did one fiction film called Canadian Bacon, which wasn't like his greatest, but it had that kind of like... With uh, that, John Candy? Yeah, yeah. It, it Michael had, Moore did that? He did, yeah. That was his one foray into fiction. That's so weird. I've totally, I've seen that VHS at the rental store all the time <laughs> when I, you know, when those were still a thing, but mm. I never uh, watched it. <laughs> it's, it's, like I said, it's very broad and yeah. it's, it's like, um, and you know, this and Dr. Strangelove, uh, they've got the funny names, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Jack D. Ripper. You know, or, you know, Grace Pander, you know, it's just like stuff like, um, like how Grace Pander is constantly like, oh, and I'm here talking to my dear, dear friend, you know, yeah. which totally, uh, reminded me for some reason of, uh, all that jazz, uh, cause, uh, there's this Ben Vereen kind of plays a version of himself in that. And he's always like on TV and they're like, he's like, I'm here to t- introduce a great entertainer and a great humanitarian and just about my dearest friend for the last 25 <laughs> years. And it's always a different guy every time, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I kind of got that vibe, you know, the, the Howard Cosell thing, like I said, the funny names, it, like the fact that like Mr. President is just Mr. President. It's like, it's not an honorary, uh, honorific, I should say. It, it's like, it's his name. He's like, yeah. It- yeah, it he's also like, seems like a weird, slavish way to refer to him, which is that don't think of him as a person. This is, you know, only – and I, I often wonder – and maybe this is just me being a liberal rapscallion. But, oh, dare uh, you. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a person who thinks the outrage uh, at something like flag burning or something – it is just so overblown when it comes to the idea of like how is anything that's technically I mean nobody burns a flag on accident. I mean let's put it that way. You know, like it's always purposeful. And so which means that everyone's only ever reacting to the purpose, not to the act itself. That's an interesting and, point. Uh on that note though, I also think the idea that we always have to call the president Mr. President, like, even in real life, instead of, like, I don't know, Mr. Trump or something, because I'm sorry, but the idea that, you know, uh, that that is technically, like, I mean, obviously it's not illegal in this country yet, but right. you get the right person in office, and that could basically be a, like, jailable offense, because at the end of the day, we're already treating it like that, and it just weirdly dehumanizes the whole office, and on the one hand, you probably have to be dehumanized if you're going to do that job, but on the other hand, uh, it creates a very weird uh, chasm between the population and the office itself. It's kind of it's kind of a profound point about how it does dehumanize, because you know, I remember reading an article um, by a writer who was a veteran, and he talked about how being called a hero, in a sense, was dehumanizing to him and his other soldiers, because he felt like it makes it possible for them to put them on a pedestal and then kind of forget about them, because they're not even people. They're heroes, yeah. but we don't have to relate to them as people, so we don't have to, like... He was talking about veterans' benefits and the like, but it's it's very yeah. true. It's it's like when you dehumanize somebody like that, they're no longer... Well, they're literally no longer a human. They're the president, oh, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, honor, you know, honor the troops. It's like, okay, well, honor the troops is great, but, you know, the best way to do that is with veteran affairs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's yes, just like, exactly. I'm glad that... 
you know, you can't say anything bad about them, but like maybe you could say something good about them as well that will actually help them. And anyway, no, I I agree, I agree, and I could I could I could speak all day on this subject, but it's true. Like, but even the name like Mr. President in this, it's almost like President for Life, like President Xi in uh, in China, or like president duvalier and haiti in the 80s you know where it's like it's like he's there forever you know it's just mr president they don't even bother with another name now you know and you just better get used to it dude uh you know but there's also like other little broad stuff which i loved like the little like the little clown horn and slide whistle sounds like the sound effects sometimes <laughs> at the moment of the impact where the kills like totally inappropriate sound effects like yeah which i love because it, it's it's you know it's showing the like you said the dehumanization or the um they've tarted up this entertainment this this death to, as entertainment or like you know like there's there's that part that always kills me i don't know why but it's the where machine gun joe like basically just cuts the cock off this one dude like and and they cut right to the announcer and he's like oh great kill no pain for the victim (laughs) it's like how could there be no pain or or like you know he's uh those two guys there's a lot of nerve endings in there i've been told no i'm kidding Um, (laughs) but it's but like you know like they show like that it's like right around that scene where like shows like the two guys are putting up the banner and machine gun, machine gun Joe hits the guy. And then he looks over at like the other guy, the coworker, the guy's friend ostensibly. Right. And he's like, what do you think? And the guy gives him the thumbs down. Like, you know, it's like uh more, more salute, which is like emperor. We who are about to die salute you, which is something supposedly the centurions would say, you know, kind of as a way to like, prick the conscience of the emperor which didn't work of course because he was a bastard yeah. you know but yeah just like the whole thumbs down thing it's like dude he's your co-worker <laughs> there's just there's <laughs> a, that sense of broadness and unreality i don't know i just I, I think it's very rare to see a satire like this you know like i said dr strange love i think i think maybe recently sorry to bother you maybe like like you said starship troopers or um, one of those Alleganis movies from the fifties, like Kind Hearts and Coronets, or something. But it's 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 really it's it's hard to pin down. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and it's funny you should mention Starship Troopers because that was one of the only ones I could really think of where, like you said, it was played to the hilt. It wasn't a wink, but I mean, it was humorous, but it wasn't like oh, we're all in on the joke, ha ha ha. It was it was very much played to it. It, it had the courage of its convictions, I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, Before we get into a kind of final verdict, I want to mention one more aspect of this movie and why I think it's, uh, for me at least, an all-timer. But uh, technically, the central metaphor at play, too, with regards to violence, is an almost meta aspect on this film as far as exploitation filmmaking and the value that it has, if any. Um, Because I certainly, while I don't agree with an argument like that, I would certainly entertain it and hear it out because at the end of the day, there is some credence to the idea that a lot of times we seek this movies out not for their political undertones or for their uh, satirical genius, <laughs> right. uh, but instead because, technically speaking, we want to see people get murdered. And um, right. I, I I think throughout this movie, the movie, while we say it doesn't wink, because I don't think it does, 
it does technically, I think, turn the camera around sometimes in a 360 way, uh, not physically, but metaphorically on the audience. And uh, some of those cutaways are almost like, you know, teasing you and like, yeah, we know you came for this and technically it, uh, we're not going to show you it. And, and it's it's a pretty mm-hmm. violent movie, but I also was slightly surprised by how restrained it was at times too, because there were a lot of times when a squib or so was only seen for a fraction of a second. Um, and I almost feel like the movie is trying to condemn the audience at home uh, the same way it's condemning those audience that are sitting in the bleachers. And I, I absolutely love it. It totally works on that level. And I don't think it completely comes down on the side of like, you know, uh, all violent cinema is inherently, you know, bad or anything like that. Sure. But I certainly think it, it shows the danger of only, uh, you know, only sitting down to watch for these reasons. And I say that as someone who will do that time after time. So oh, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm no, uh, I'm no saint in that respect. Cause yes, sometimes I am putting on a Jason movie just to watch Jason throw a co-ed around in a sleeping bag up against a tree <laughs> until they're dead. Sure. And it's like, like you, do. you know, on the one hand, I, you know, that is exactly why I put that movie on. On the other hand, uh, what does that say about me? And what does it say about the society at large that it was allowed to uh, be created? And that mm. not only be created, but that that was, in that instance, that was supported by a studio that wasn't, you know, independent filmmaking. <laughs> that was a literal give the people what they want uh, uh, moment. So anyway. No, um, that's a very good point. Uh, I mean, I definitely get that vibe too. And that was something that I didn't really catch until this most recent time I watched Death Race was feeling that, gosh, you know, as an exploitation viewer, as an exploitation moviegoer, I am, in a sense, uh, doing a lot of the same things as the audience. You know, it feels a bit like... Um, uh, you know, like that last shot on the Wolf of Wall Street where it shows him and he's, uh, he's trying to get the guys to sell the pen in the convention center, you know? And, uh, it, there's that, that really enigmatic last shot, which I believe is about us. It's like, oh, we've turned the camera onto you. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, this Jordan guy, he's a bad guy, but we watched him for three hours because we found him so fascinating. And isn't that in a sense making us complicit? And I think to an extent that's true in this too. I mean, you're right. Corman could have made it a lot bloodier than it was, or I should I should say, Paul Bartel actually. Um, Apparently, Paul Bartel wanted it to be darker, and it was oh, actually really? Corman. Yeah, I, I read a little bit uh, of an interview, and not so much that it was drastically different, but Paul Bartel has been on the record basically saying that Corman ripped out everything that made it, uh, shall we say more adult and more mm. you know whatever which is saying something because obviously you watch it now and you're like this is a roger corman picture through and through as far as uh you know violence and uh sex although it is a little chaste when it comes to sex i will admit because true while there is some nudity uh it's weirdly i wouldn't say tasteful but it's weirdly uh prudish because there's no sex in the entire movie i don't think there's i agree um there's obviously there's nudity and there's like uh, ogling and whatnot, but um, it's not sex exploitation at all. Um, and obviously the violence is cut away from. So maybe Paul Bartel is onto something as far as he really did want it to be uh, way more uh, whatever darker or whatever. So mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I-, I could talk a long time about the idea of um, 
of violence in films, and depending on how it's portrayed, often you can tell that a director is more committed to um, a more realistic or more moral vision when he does actually linger on the result of killing. You know, like you were saying, you know, like we were saying about the beginning, um, that passage you read, where it's it's like, oh, these guys are forced to look at the thing that they've never looked at before in the same way that the audience hasn't either because they keep cutting away to the, you know, announcer saying, oh my God, they got all these points, you know, or whatever. So yeah, no, yeah. I, I think you might have a point there. Uh, Absolutely. W- one thing I want to say really fast, which I just think is kind of funny, uh, but until I saw Death Race 2000, I think the only thing I knew about <laughs> from Paul Bartel that I'd actually physically seen was he has a cameo in The Usual Suspects. Uh, I have no idea why. I don't know if he knows, you know, Brian Singer or Christopher McQuarrie or whoever. But he's he, it's it's only like a couple lines. But he's the guy they pick up. The cops will pick up at the airport every couple weeks, and it's this total corruption thing where they're all getting a payoff. And basically, the usual suspects characters, the 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 crew, uh, rob them in such a way that it becomes a huge embarrassment to the police force or something. But yeah, that's like Paul Bartel. He's only got a couple lines, but it's like they're like they pick him up at the airport and they're like, "How was it?" He's like, "Oh, it was fucking great! I got all this money," <laughs> you know. So I just I love that he's in other stuff too other than just as a director which obviously is very talented there too oh well and also technically speaking Paul Bartel is the doctor that wheels out Frankenstein yes I didn't yes. know that until the most recent time I saw it yeah so that's his little cameo in here which obviously is a great little uh you know meta aspect of like the director literally wheeling in the star of the picture and whatnot and uh, mm-hmm. But also, he's definitely a dead ringer for that uh, crazy white coat scientist uh, <laughs> who just shows up for a scene. Yes. I, I also found out that the girl who um, is going to basically, you know, throw herself at Frankenstein, the part oh, yeah. of the cult, whatever, that is Paul Bartel's sister. <laughs> really? Oh, she was, yeah. she was good. I mean, she's only in the one, well, I guess two scenes because she gets run over later, but... I thought she was quite good, actually. I yeah, she... I would have thought she was like a out, you know, whatever actor or oh. actress, whatever. But um, yeah, no, that was uh, it's all in the family, I guess. So the uh, the other things that that surprised me about the movie, um, just really quick, were for one thing, cinematography by Tak Fujimoto, who's yeah. like um, a major talent. I mean, he's direct. I mean, he did cinematography for several Jonathan Demme movies, which I guess makes sense because Demme did Caged Heat for Corman, so it's probably where they met. Yeah. And then the other thing is, I loved the moment where there's a moment near the end where Machine Gun Joe accidentally calls Myra Mary, and they're like, "Yeah, oh, yeah. we're gonna leave it in." I just those are those little <laughs> little things where when a film's on a shoestring, I, I kind of enjoy it, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I, I, I enjoy it because it feels, and it just adds a texture to it. Like, well, you know, they couldn't go back and reshoot, and you know what? It's fine, you know. But it's just one yeah. of those things, you know. I just enjoy that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and on that note, too, um, the uh, editor, uh, Tina, I forget what her, Tina Hirsch, uh, she was the editor here, and she edited other, I think, uh, New American Pictures, but most famously, she was the editor for uh, Gremlins. Really? Yeah. That so is a, a very of... well-cut film. Oh, yeah. she. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, she, she edited that, Twilight Zone the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, at least w- uh, one of the three sequences, not the whole movie. Probably the Joe Dante section, I'm guessing, which is the uh, part two, maybe? Or? 
It's the one called It's a Good Life. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's horrifying. That's a that's a beautiful yeah. section. So and she's done a lot more too, especially in television and whatnot. But yeah. That's awesome. Um, a lot of a lot of pedigree behind the scenes for sure. Um so so why don't we go into uh final verdict here Indeed. and I will let you go first before you do. I guess I'll say if this is your first time listening to this podcast, which it probably is because it's the first episode. <laughs> um, but if you uh, haven't listened to any episode of our sister podcast, Film Tank, uh, you may be uh, unfamiliar with a system that we have in place that I think we're going to go with for now. We might change it up later. But mm-hmm. for right now, we're going to do star ratings uh, out of five stars. And you are allowed to do half stars. So you can do whatever you want from uh, – I, I don't think – I've ever done this before, and I don't think you have either, uh, but from half star to five stars, because, what do you call it, Uh, there's no such thing as zero stars. That means the movie did not exist. Unless you're Roger Ebert, who did give this zero stars. Did he really? Yes, he hated this movie. Wow! Um, I would have thought he would have totally been on this thing's wavelength. Um, Roger Ebert, and that's a whole other conversation, but and I love Roger Ebert. Oh, me too. But he has a weird track record when it comes to violence. Sure. Um, and I say weird track record because on the one hand, he was one of the most liberal, I think, film critics of mm-hmm. his generation. He sure. reviewed porn films. He reviewed, you know, like... For 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 a man of his stature and clout, he didn't have to review half the shit that he did, but he did anyway because he he loved movies and he loved all types of movies. Not only that, but he loved uh, breasts so much that he <laughs> made uh, he wrote the screenplay for uh, Russ Meyer's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, yes. uh, just so that he could make his own cinematic ode to mammary glands. So <laughs> you would think that someone like him would not be so hoity-toity at times. I mean, every once in a while, a movie is, uh, particularly with regards to violence, I think, is uh, too much for for Re- Ebert. Now, I will say mm. later on, he did say he didn't quite hate the movie, mm. um, as at least in the, you know, in, in the later, you know, part of his life, but uh, he said he stands by his ratings at all times, because why change it? Which I kind of agree, it's like that's a record of what you... You know, whatever. Sure. Uh, but also, yeah, his, yeah, he gave it zero stars. He said it was wow. an abomination and it was a reckless, you know, dangerous thing to put out in society, basically. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. I do remember him giving zero stars to I Spit on Your Grave, I believe. Yeah. And Poss- Which, that's another graphic, violent movie. Definitely. Certainly in the exploitation genre yep. to an extent. Um, Blue Velvet. Oh, God, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Obviously, he famously hated that. And if that's not necessarily extreme violence, but it's extreme, you know, degradation. So, obviously, um, there's yeah. some of that. Oh, but. yeah. There's there's definitely a um, transgressive element to, I mean, to put it mildly in Blue Velvet. So, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, uh, moving on from Ebert. But we are going to rate these movies. Uh, we'll give a little context as to what went into that rating. So, Dan, why don't you uh, kick us off? Sure. Um, I would give this four and a half. Um, I I think the first time I saw it, I instantly recognized it for being kind of a 
I mean, it's obviously not the prototype movie because, as I described earlier, I mean, there's other, you know, there's the most dangerous game, Thirty Two, and um, you know, uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff here, uh, the Naked Prey, um, and other stuff like that, um, uh, a Game of Death, which is a Robert Wise movie from 1945. So, I mean, there's obviously antecedents, but I mean, I I feel like this film really understood the media aspect and the the way that we can very easily accidentally become complicit and that's one of the things that makes me say it's it's clearly um a, a proto film or an ur film or whatever you want to say um i i also think uh it has a wicked sense of humor i mean there's there's everything from the the dumbest puns you know like oh it's a hand grenade <laughs> you know or whatever to like really pretty sophisticated satire at times you know and i i think um for that to for a movie like this to check all those exploitation boxes if you will that was the audience expected and then at the same time also kind of sneak in all this commentary is is pretty pretty amazing especially in just 80 minutes you know that's a that's a pretty incredible film and i mean in 1975 like i said this was like the year before network and a lot of other films you know obviously well before the running man and some of these other films where you know spectacle uh television spectacle is um critiqued you know so i don't know i i i i really give it a, a very high rating and um I, I definitely think it's one of um, the best films Corman ever produced. Um, and uh, it definitely makes me want to watch more films by Paul Bartel, certainly. Right on. I'm going to echo what you said, mm. and I'm going to give it four and a half what? out of five as well. I think this was a perfect choice for our first episode, because obviously we're on the same wavelength, I think, as to what this film is putting out. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty much a pitch-perfect picture uh say that five times really fast um i think it's it's so great and i think one of the things that really struck me in rewatching it besides its timeliness and it's uh how it'll never really be outdated no matter how outdated it looks mm -hmm. is the fact that it's one of the greatest uh paced exploitation movies of this time it's it, not just because it's 80 minutes because i've watched a lot of 80 minutes uh exploitation movies that go on for far too long, you know, that just do not know how to economically use time and space. <laughs> and this movie is not that at all. Um, it's surprisingly brisk in the way it uh, quite literally, you know, rides from one subplot to another, and it never really threatens to go off the track. And, um, in fact, those uh, rest and relaxation, whatever, spa treatments are almost like these nice little interludes to the fast-paced action, and it's just, it's all so composed so well that it, it goes by so fast, and I think that's part of what makes it really hold up today. So uh, it's four and a half out of five stars for me. Right on. And uh, really, that's uh, four and a half, I guess, from both of us yeah. for Death Wraith 2000, uh, directed by Paul Bartel. So, this is probably the only time we'll ever have the exact same rating. I'm mean, not to say that you and I, I mean, aren't of the same mind many times, but that's like no, exactly No, but that is a same. rare thing mm -hmm. uh, for us. So that's kind of interesting. And don't get used to it, listeners. Yes, auspicious, um, uh, auspicious beginning. Yeah. But a great, a great way to Christian this maiden voyage. Indeed. <laughs> um, so we're going to go on really quick 
to uh, a segment that I think may become a staple of, uh, we'll see how it works, uh, where after we talk about the film in question, we're going to go on to a segment called The A-List. Insert A-List theme song. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to make another one. Uh, I don't have no idea. Sorry. I say no, I'm kidding, because I want to make sure that Dan hears me say no, I'm kidding, and that we don't actually make one. Well, uh, now yeah, that the yeah. thought is in my mind... No, I'm keep going. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Sorry. Uh, so here in the A-list, what we're going to do is I think one of the things that can be challenging um, for anyone who's not a big fan of this whole uh, genre, so to speak. Although if you're not, it'd be interesting as to why you even listen to this entire <laughs> podcast. But, you know, whatever, <laughs> to each his own. Um, but one of the things that can be kind of interesting is looking at... Uh, these movies as a predecessor of other things that came after it. It doesn't mean that it has to have a direct lineage of like, oh, this is clearly a remake of Death Race, which, first of all, does exist and pretty much sucks. But, uh, yeah. you know, but it's more of like, how how can you sell this to an audience that has seen other movies that actually share similar themes and they don't have to be exploitation, uh, they can be obviously, but are just more uh, like, you know, you watch this, so maybe if you think about that while you're watching this, you'll see that, yeah, it's got a lower budget, it's got whatever, but these are trying to do the same things or whatever. So there's really no criteria for this, so I guess even though I'm explaining it, uh, it's really going to go uh, all over, but um, I just think it would be kind of fun because if what we're discussing here right now uh, and every episode are what's known as B pictures, then here on the A list we are going to talk about what is that A film that would make a good double feature with these pictures. Now, the only real criteria is that, in a sense, the movie that we're going to suggest, and we each have our own pick, uh, is going to be slightly more, uh, if not accessible, just more known or more widely seen, um, because that's the whole purpose of an A movie, is the one that draws you in, and then you stay for the B movie. So, uh, I'm going to go first, Dan, if you don't mind. No, no, please do. Just to kick this old thing off. Um, so for me, my pick on the A-list for Death Race 2000 is The Purge Anarchy. Uh, this is the second Purge movie, and really any of them pretty much work. Uh, and I just chose the second one for reasons I'll explain. But when I was watching Death Race 2000, I was very much reminded of the Purge franchise. One, because I am a huge fan of the Purge franchise. I, for some reason, will not stop talking about it to anyone who will listen. And it's um, it's, it's really a problem. Uh, well, in, in, in your defense, I should say, the Purge franchise is, is punching up quite a bit. It's quite a bit better that than is one true. would assume. I do... Oh, absolutely. I think it's both its success and its merit is almost completely accidental. I do not think James DeMonico, uh, writer-director of uh, most of the entries, if not writer of all of them, is any kind of political genius or anything like that, but his brand of blunt force trauma politics are perfectly suited for the era that uh, ensued directly after the very first film was made. Um the second movie, The Burge Anarchy, uh, is the first movie in the series that actually follows the format of what the entire franchise would then go on to do for every single movie and then even the TV show. Um, and it's what reminded me most of Death Race 2000 when I was watching it, because in both movies you have a 
world that is supposed to be our own. You know, it's one that even if it's unrecognizable, it's technically a culmination of all of our collective mistakes as a society that led us to a certain point that we're now watching being depicted. And it both of them offer up a nationwide event in which, technically speaking, uh, anything goes if you are uh, participating in this event. Now, obviously, there's a complete difference between, like, everybody's allowed to commit crime, like in The Purge, or in this case, it's like only the racers are allowed to, you know, whatever. But the idea that the law does not exist uh, during a certain time frame and uh, for certain people, that's pretty much the entire ethos of uh, The Purge franchise. And... Both of the movies uh, on the surface, it's just, unfortunately, but it's kind of fun to watch, you know? It's like that thought experiment of, like, well, geez, like, what if this really could happen? You know, how would you react? How would you whatever? But also, both uh, both properties, honestly, I think, paint it in a way that... Um, What's scary about The Purge is I feel like that that's the natural evolution of an idea like Death Race 2000, where back in the mm. 70s, you watch it and you're like, even the most hardened person would be like, while they would have fun with it, they're not really going to walk away wishing that that existed, so to speak, at least not in the form that you see it. Uh, 30 to 40 years later, uh, when The Purge movie comes out, uh, there were real people and real human beings that watched The Purge and was like, well, maybe it's not so bad if this happened. <laughs> and then you realize that Death Ray 2000 was actually a harbinger of <laughs> uh, demons to come. And um, and I, I don't know, I just think The Purge Anarchy with the whole out-on-the-street uh, uh, environment in which uh, you have a protector in, in, in the anarchy, it's the Frank Grillo character, and here you have Frankenstein himself by David Carradine, uh, kind of meet, and actually literally meeting up with a resistance uh, faction that are trying to fight back against an oppressive government, uh, and how it all stems from this event that's a nationwide yearly tradition. So um, obviously I could go on and on, but I won't. But I definitely think that if you are a fan of the Purge movies, uh, and you haven't seen Death Race 2000, I, obviously the, the the big difference between the two is one is definitely a comedy and the other one is definitely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Death Race 2000, of course, being the broad uh, comedy. But I don't think that is still all that far off from uh, the mood and the atmosphere because technically speaking, no matter how dark or dramatic the purge is, uh, it's still such a ludicrous concept that it operates in this kind of exploitative realm that is uh, a nightmare when you're watching, but also you kind of have to laugh at it because otherwise you'll remember that we're only about a few years away from <laughs> starting our own Purge. So uh, for my, my pick for the A-list, it would be a double feature of The Purge, Anarchy, and Death Wraith 2000. Uh, Dan, what about yourself? Uh, I agree with everything you said, and uh, um, I, I would love to see that double feature sometime. I think that's a great idea, actually. Um, I think um, I think you're absolutely right, unfortunately, um, because, you know, The Purge does in a sense uh, follow that exploitation idea that we're satisfying that certain part of our you know primal urge to you want to watch a movie like it you that's know? I mean, 
Yeah, and that's the whole ethos that the entire, the, that fake, well, fictional, I should say, government, the NFFA, New Founding mm, Fathers of America, right. their entire ethos and argument for the purge is that man is animalistic and must, you know, do violence, so therefore we we need to do this 24 hours to get out right. of our system. That, in and of itself, is almost like an argument for exploitation filmmakers. It's kind of like, you know, we all have these urges, so why don't we make the movie so that way we can watch them and then we don't have to do them in that sense we purge these emotions from us oh Oh, uh see i'm always thinking (laughs) i'm always thinking anyway um no but i i agree with you um and uh i mean the same argument is often used for uh, pornography uh, convincingly so i would say where people are like well you know i mean a lot of these these people who commit sex crimes or whatever it's quite possible they could have found a a very safe release in this totally non-victimized version or something like that anyway um unfortunately um my choice it sort of flies in the face of everything we were supposed to do for this i i naffed the assignment completely uh originally i wanted to do series seven which is an awesome awesome movie featuring brooke i cannot think of her last name she was the gal who gets kidnapped in the silence of the lambs she's also in vanya on 42nd street she's wonderful oh yeah uh, Brooks, uh, boy. something. I forgot her last name, but I know who you're talking about. But she's absolutely wonderful. It's a movie from 2001 called Series 7, The Contenders. And uh, unfortunately, it's impossible to find. I mean, like, if you look for it on Amazon, it's like, you know, 50 freaking bucks. You know, I just, it's so, I felt like that was maybe not what I wanted to talk about. So <laughs> instead, I, I decided to talk about something that actually Brooke came. Smith, by the way. Thank just you, Brooke Smith. There. Yes. And she is such a talent, too. I don't know why I forgot her name. It's a shame. But she's especially great in this. This is this is probably her finest hour. Uh, but it's basically a game show. Uh, well, it's more like a reality show, I should say, where people hunt and kill each other. And uh, it's just a fascinating film. It is available on DVD, but like I said, it's kind of hard to find. It's a little pricey. So instead, I'm going to talk about a movie that came out back in 1971, so four years before uh, Death Race. And it's a film called Punishment Park uh, by Peter Watkins. Uh, Peter Watkins is... And and it's funny, because in a sense, this film was actually made for much less money than Death Race. So in a sense, this would be considered more of a B-picture. But in recent times, it's become... um, It's it's critical esteem has gone up considerably to the point where it's... uh, Amongst some people, at least, it would be considered like an art film you know what i mean and it, and it truly is it's it's um peter watkins was or is i should say this amazing british filmmaker he's a one of a kind and basically he started doing these things that we now call mockumentaries but he didn't call them that and they were they were not mockumentaries in the sense of like this is spinal tap or waiting for guffman i mean the only similarity there is that there's a lot of improvisation but the the tone is totally different so kind he of would a do cinema verite take Exactly. But he would do it like where it appeared to be newsreel footage. So like he Uh would do like he did a film called Culladine, which was about this famous battle in Scotland. And I want to say the 1600s. So he's interviewing all these like poor itinerant uh, Highlanders who are like, yeah, I was forced into fighting for the prince and blah, blah, blah. But it's so odd because there's this anachronistic element of this new excuse me, this news camera there and they're interviewing them. Like it's, he definitely is trying to emulate a documentary style, specifically like 
a TV documentary, not even like a movie one, like a prestige one. It's more like something they do on the BBC or, you know, on PBS is like a, a learning thing. And it's uncanny and bizarre. I mean, to the point where he did one where he uh, called the war game, where he uh, talked about, so he basically recreated using uh, existing footage and recreations with actors on a very low budget, but he basically made it look like London had been hit by a nuclear bomb and the uh, aftermath of that. And like people were calling into the BBC like, well, wait, I didn't know this happened. Like it was that, the verisimilitude was that high. So he eventually did a film called The Gladiators, which is quite good from 1966, I want to say, which is very similar. It has to do with this idea of like the, um, what they call the peace games, which is like all these different countries get together and they select like certain athletes, you might say, or warriors. It's much like the Hunger Games. And they fight it out so that the, the, the countries don't have to actually go into a world war where the, you know millions will be killed. And it's all televised. And again, I, I love that movie, but unfortunately, it's extremely hard to find, too. You'd have to buy like this big Peter Watkins box set. So instead, I'm going to suggest a movie called Punishment Park, which he did in 1971. And it's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's It was reviled when it came out. I mean, people were angry. Like Vincent Canby at the New York Times wrote like a scathing, I mean, just insulted Peter Watkins directly talking about how bad, how awful it was, how just immoral. But basically what it is, is it shows, uh, well, it's 19, it was filmed in 1970 and came out in 1971. And in 1970, basically you had already had the Chicago uh, Democratic Convention um, police riots. And then you had Kent State in 1970, where they, they killed several students protesting at Kent State University in Ohio. And basically, Peter Watkins started interviewing young people who were part of the peace movement who didn't you know want to be drafted and go to Vietnam. And he, he realized, I just want to cast these people almost as themselves. And what he did is he created this fictional place in California uh, that's in the desert where he said it was like a penal colony. It was called Punishment Park. And the idea was that the U.S. had created these punishment parks all over the country, and they had rounded up anybody who was suspected of subversion or might, like, commit a crime later. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's yeah. like future crime. It's almost like Minority Report. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so they would put all these people together and... I mean, I, I've already talked too long about it, but it's an absolutely brilliant film that appears to be a documentary to the point where people who watch it routinely will ask at the end of the screening, like, okay, so there aren't really actual punishment parts, right? <laughs> and then they'll go from there because it's it's, so it's that. Yeah. Kind of similar to uh, a very famous uh, exploitation film, Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. By Rigorio Diodato. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, because obviously that movie was... Uh, well, they were going for that to the point where the director literally told his actors not to appear in public and oh, yeah. not to give interviews. So uh, on the one hand, that was more of like a prank in some way. Not that that's their exact intent, but like, you know, you're 
the movie wasn't speaking for itself so much as the director was trying to perpetuate it. But sure. Uh, but a similar thing happened with that, where he did have to at least at one point go to trial just to be <laughs> on oath and say, "No, I didn't kill anybody. I did kill animals on screen," and that's why uh, yeah. some people still obviously will not watch it for understandable reasons. But anyway. yeah, I mean, I have to admit, even I've been hesitant to watch that because of the killing of animals because it, yeah. it does. That's that's legit killing of animals, but. Yeah. Uh, this is a bit like that. I mean, nobody's actually hurt or killed, but the people who were in it often express their own opinions. So you'd have these uh, guys, these you know, teenagers or, or early 20-something radicals who had been rounded up. And basically the idea is they go to a tribunal where they have like basically no lawyer. It's like a military tribunal. And they're basically told, they're given these ridiculously long prison sentences. And they're like, well... So here's the thing: you can even serve, you can either serve this draconian sentence, or you can do this thing where you trek across like 55 miles and capture this American flag in the middle of the desert. And if you and you have three days to do that, and if you can do that, we'll let you go. And it's but the whole time, of course, they're hunted by uh, policemen and national guard and people who are basically essentially people around their own age who are being trained to suppress this stuff. So, and some of the people who played the radicals were very radical in real life. And some of the police play were people who had been in law enforcement. Some of them had some fairly right-wing views, and maybe not as right-wing as this. And it got pretty heated. Like, there was a part in the movie near the end, which actually makes it into the final cut, where um, basically a couple of the uh, uh, activists who are being hunted threw a couple stones at uh, one of the National Guardsmen. And he reacted by, like, basically dropping to his knees and shooting at them. Now, it was blanks. But the the actors, the two students, responded by pretending to die. And Peter Watkins, the director, was like, oh, my God, the, did yeah. we have a live round here? It, you know, I think we might have, I think somebody might have died. But it was just the 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 mood, the heightened sense of purpose and, and mood and, and the genuine, you know, clash of ideas led these people to act out this thing so perfectly that it's, I mean, it's, it's in the film you can actually hear them yelling, cut, 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 <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful film that is very much a precursor in a lot of ways to uh, the running man or something like that. I mean, it's not exactly like death race. It doesn't, it's not vehicular, but it's so powerful. And the editing and the, and the audio design is so um, claustrophobic and immersive that even to this day, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's just a mono soundtrack. It's not even stereo, but even to this day, I mean, it, it really, uh, affects you. And, uh, so I would really, really recommend Punishment Park by Peter Watkins, which at the time was filmed for a ridiculously low amount of money, probably less than death, death race. But nowadays is a very highly yeah reportedly ninety five thousand dollars, and that's compared to Death Race is about half a million. Right, exactly. I mean, that's you know, that's I mean, ninety five back then. I mean, I think a typical you know, uh, typical low end Hollywood budget would be like two million at least back in right. like seventy yeah. ish. So I mean, it's, it's it's but I mean, my point is is that even though it's actually a film from beforehand and it's actually a film that was made for much less, it has become a very much a prestige picture now. It's it's, it's uh, reputation has been rehabilitated, and I think in a way it's a really interesting film to watch with Death Race 
because it um it plays it totally straight it plays it um as realistic as they possibly could make it i mean to the point where they didn't they shot the whole thing in, i think 14 days and i think they had one camera and i mean it's just it's just one of those like miracles that they even pulled it off and and peter watkins is such an intriguing guy i mean i would definitely recommend any of his films but that one in particular is just an arresting movie i mean it does stick with you it sticks in your ribs so that's my A-list. Well, I have to admit that I had not heard of Peter Watkins before mm. this episode. So, oh, that's cool. Uh, I'm going to mark him down, and I'm going to mark Punishment Park down. And I will say that you are forgiven for not following <laughs> my criteria solely because the movie itself sounds interesting, and I'm interested in it, and what I say goes. So, uh, True. Good job, Dan. Well, thank you. Uh, that does sound like a good double feature. So before we wrap it up, I just want to point out one other thing here at Project Exploitation. We love physical media, so I'm going to always try to plug a release of the movie that we talked about if one exists. And unfortunately, I have sad news to uh, offer up, which is that Shout Factory put out a disc on Blu-ray of Death Race 2000. It's the disc that I uh, watched for right. this release. Uh it is out of print as of right now, so I did not know that. Uh, Damn it. So I went on Amazon, and it's like 150 bucks if you want to buy it. So, uh, wow. yeah. I mean, I guess I'm happy that I have it now, but it obviously sucks that all these kind of rights uh, last and whatnot. Um, but what I don't understand about that is that I know Shout Factory owns uh, it, all the Roger Corman produced, like, uh, New World Pictures, so I, I'm almost trying to figure out is it just out of print and they're 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 kind of I will admit Shout Factory is not my favorite label I, I like them a lot mm-hmm. but they are notorious for re-releasing the same goddamn movie like every three months because now they have a steel book now they have a poster now they you know whatever <laughs> right now they found another negative and and I'm all for that but obviously at the end of the day I, I only really need one copy of of any movie um and death race 2000 is no different so i wonder if technically it's it's, they let it last because they're going to renew it uh and another uh version a better version is going to be on the horizon but unfortunately right now if if it is one of your favorite films you can track down a blu-ray and the blu-ray is quite good uh it's got a lot of fun stuff like some uh two or three commentary maybe two but definitely more than one uh one with roger corman and whatnot which i did not listen to before this episode but i i meant to but anyway it's great print probably the best it's going to look right now on home video and that's shout factory's release of death race 2000 wow so it is time to wrap this up uh hopefully you're still listening out there and we're not just uh talking to the wind here but uh i had a lot of fun today dan uh talking to you i had a great time as always I always enjoy oh. talking movies with you. Dan, that was a test. You will be on the next episode. Congratulations. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, <laughs> well, I we, just, when you were talking about The Purge 2, I did get lost in your eyes a little bit. Just oh, saying. Dan. You know, I'm that's just saying. Just, you know? Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> I call them like we I don't, see them. Oh, well, <laughs> I'll pick them up. <laughs> uh We do not know yet what we're going to do. I don't think we're going to plan out our schedule to the point where we'll always know what we're going to do by the end of it because that's just some of these movies are hard to find sometimes so i think we're always we'll, we'll announce it on 
the one social media page that we have, but we will, uh, you know, uh, I think that's how we're going to do it. So, uh, I will say, if you're listening to this, we are available, uh, hopefully at least, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are pulled. Uh, I'm capable of at least that much. And um, we are going to be, at the right now, I think the only social media presence we're going to have is on Twitter, because A, I've already set it up, mm. and... B, I've decided that one of the biggest failings of Film Tank, and I don't mean failing in a pejorative like, oh, that's a, like, the podcast itself is not a failure, but <laughs> is that we jumped the gun when we started that and we created, like, five social media accounts, you know, across all these different things, including, like, Instagram, where you can only post pictures and no links, uh, and I, with this, I'm going to start small. And if I can get a Twitter presence actually going off, then maybe I'll add Facebook and whatnot. I mean, we will share it on our Facebook pages, but uh, I'm not going to create a whole separate entity just yet. But if you want to look for us on Twitter, we are at Projects Pod, which is P R O J E X P O D. Literally, I was. It's project exploitation is 15 characters and you're only allowed to do 14 and i was very annoyed uh mm-hmm. and had to get a little creative so projects pod is who we are on twitter and look at that space for maybe uh, an announcement on what our next film is going to be so from myself nick cheney from my colleague here dan jeremy books mm-hmm. books more books. I do love books. Oh, man. Okay, real talk, listeners. We've technically been in front of the computer for four hours now due to technical difficulties. True. And, and just because we enjoy each other's company. True. So damn much. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, my colleague's name is not Brooks. Uh, his name is Dan Jeremy Brooks. And thank you very much for listening to Project Exploitation. Hopefully, you'll join us next time. needs an end, Max. I... I don't have an end.